are going to be uncovering some untold riches. Let's do this. Sally, hey, Sally. folks. What? I am Peyton Polychromes, and this is my podcast partner, Richard Bridges. You did it. You got to register a time. This way? No, got it wrong anyway. That way. There he is. The flip-flop. I could mirror it. There's a setting I can click, but then I, I've learned to adjust my beard properly on the camera that most of our listeners can't see me on anyway. Um, I will say I am once again on my cozy office couch uh, in my literal pajamas because no, of a funny story. Funny story. Last night I had a listing appointment at 7 p.m. in Woodbridge. I get a call from my buyer who's closing today saying they can't make their walkthrough. So I call the agent, listing agent. Hey, I got to go up and do this walkthrough. Can you give me a one-day code? Because I'm not going to be up there till late tonight. Uh, so my wife can do her baby self-care things to the, today. So I drive up there at 9.30 at night, and he was a big fat liar cat, and the lockbox wouldn't open. So I was home at 10.45 p.m. from Annandale. I was as bitter as you can imagine. Uh, and this morning, woke up after falling asleep like a little baby. I'm laying down on my side like a little baby <laughs> on the couch and waking up at 7.05, right. uh, getting myself washed up and cleaned and ready for the day. And then Miles, my six-year-old, comes and goes, Dad, you're home. I didn't see you last night before bed. Oh, my gosh, double gun points. And I'm like, sorry, champ, leaving to go to Annandale. And he's like, can I come? And I'm like, most boring trip ever? Absolutely. So we got some McDonald's, drove up to Annandale, got home and played some Minecraft because I knew that from this time until dark, uh, I'm going to be busy as hell going over to another client of ours, to paint some walls for, in preparation for his listing in a couple of weeks. So PJs all days until I got to start rolling paint. Uh, what about you? Good morning. How was oh, you got back from vacation, right? How was the vacation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got back from vacation. It was good. Uh, the most productive thing that I did on the trip was listen to an entire book on the way back. Other than that, I enjoyed fireworks. Uh, we went out in nature. I was under a waterfall at one point. I saw a picture of myself and realized that I have really let myself go. And dude, got up early this morning. We were just talking about that with G-Man. He's coming on in a second. Yeah, dude, I got I got no complaints. I got Sweet. no complaints. So All right. Well, without going. further ado, go ahead and drum roll, please. Introduce our next guest. What am I? Yeah, I didn't know him well until the last couple of years, and as I've gotten to know him more, he's become one of my favorite people. Um, I'm fortunate to have been a colleague of his and gotten a ch chance to just to get to know him professionally as a as a real estate agent. Now he's kind of advancing his career into a leadership role, and I've gotten to to coach with him a little bit and also learn a ton from him. And he's probably got some of the best stories that I've ever heard. We went to dinner maybe last year, uh, and uh, and I got to know him a little bit better over dinner. And let me just say, I left, and it was one of those things where like you meet somebody, and then you go home, and you start talking to your wife or you know whoever's at home. In my case, it was my wife. And I'm just like, can you believe? And then fill in the gap, right? It was just, she was just like, are you serious? And I was like, probably not. I was probably getting like 20% of the facts right, but it just blew my mind. And that's what we've got today. Gunther yeah. Hammer. Ooh, without further ado. Yeah. There he is, G Man no himself. Pressure. I'll give you the double guns, Peyton. Bop, 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 bop. That's how we end our podcast because we are corny as hell. We were going to yeah, double our way out. Like that's a couple of pop collars. That is what we do. That's what we do. Got a question for you, G Man. What is Gunks? I'm going to need to know what that is because I'm going to look at it for an hour. And so, uh, it's a, hold on. Let me turn my volume up here. It's actually two things. And well, it's, it's one thing. So, my first niece, I'm the youngest of six kids. So my okay. oldest niece 
is on. I was 13 when she was born. Uh-huh. So, but anyway, um, saying Uncle Gunther was a lot for a mouthful for for a toddler. Um, so she said something like Gunkle, my my, my <laughs> Uncle Gunther, and then it just got shortened to Gunky. So or and or Gunks. So all my nieces and nephews call me Gunk. Um, and there's actually, and because I also used to do a lot of uh, rock climbing and mountain climbing, there's a, a small mountain range in northern New York called the Gunks. So oh. it's just so my, my this is actually a shirt from one of my nieces when she was living in New York. She's like, look, it's the Gunks, it's you. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. You're right. You're off to the races with the cute stories. I love that. I like that story, but I think you could probably continue to fill in the gaps with the one of six kids. What was that like growing up? Tell us a little bit about where you were raised, having five siblings, what that was like, where you fall on the range. Just kind of give us the backstory of Gunther Hemmer. Yeah. So I'm the youngest of six kids, and my parents could probably have financially provided for two kids. So they worked all the time. Um, This was in, in my you know, very young adolescence was all in like Eastern, Northeastern Pennsylvania in the Pocono mountain areas. Uh, if you know, like Walpaw Pack or, or Hawley, it was in those areas. Um, but Monday through Friday, I really didn't see my parents. They were, they were gone when I got up from, to go to school and they didn't get home until I went to bed. So I had five older siblings raising me, um, which, you know, for better or worse, you know, te- teenagers really shouldn't be left to, to raise a topic. Uh, <laughs> so, but that's a whole, you know, therapist session. Um, but I, I tell you what though, living in smaller houses all the time, uh, I think it's what's part of brought us all together. You know, now I'm, again, I'm the youngest and I'm 44, uh, going on 45 soon here. And we're, we're all still just really close. You know, my brothers are my, my best friends in the world still to this day. My sisters are, you know, so very dear to me. Um, so I don't know if it's, if it was, you know, always having to struggle together as well as being forced into, cause I don't know, we, we got a four bedroom house finally at one point and my parents took one bedroom and my sister Heidi got a room and my sister Gretchen got a room, which means the four boys, I don't know how they both got their own rooms and we had double bunk beds, uh, in our room, but they're not saying there was favorites, but there was favorites. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, but I, again, I, th- I think that what that's part of what contributed to us being, you know, really close. And then when we, when I was uh, nine, when I was nine, we moved uh, to New Jersey. Actually, after a summer of my oldest three siblings got a an apartment together, and this, you know, so they're late teens, early twenties, and me and my two brothers, just older than me, spent the summer living with my grandmother. I don't know where my parents lived, quite honestly, that summer. But I knew that fall we found a house. They found a house to rent in New Jersey, um, just outside. You know, like thirty minutes from Manhattan. Um, they filmed The Sopranos in my neighborhood. If that gives you any kind of insight to that, um, and my father got in with a limousine company, and the guy really liked him, and ended up working out a deal with the guy to sell him the limousine company. So, kind of the payback I got on my siblings for all these, you know, mental and physical abuse they gave me when I was little was. <laughs> As I got older, all of a sudden my father had some money, and you know, being a person that never managed money before, he didn't, you know, Harry. When when my older siblings were in high school, wanted to go out for the weekend, they'd say, "Can I have a couple bucks?" And my father, that's what they get, a couple bucks. Whereas when I was in high school, I said, "Hey, I'm going out." My father whips out his wallet. He's like, "Where are you going to the movies? You need gas money here." <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, the youngest. 
Yeah, no, I have four, um, and my younger brother, same deal. So I hear you. Yeah, but to that end, um, I don't know if it was you know being part spoiled or you know having where we were. You know, there, there's a hundred different reasons I can come up with. You know, needing attention, being being the youngest of that many. You know, you always got to fight for your attention. Um, as I got into my teenage years, I also kind of became the troubled uh, kid, uh, arrested a lot for a lot of different, more mo mostly petty things, one or two kind of more major things. Um, but yeah, that was the that was the growing up. But you know, yeah, I was I was not I was a terrible student. I went to high school. I went to school because that's where my friends were all day. Um, I knew I could fail two classes and make them up in summer school. If you failed three classes, you could you could only make up two classes. So if you failed three classes, you had to repeat the grade. So I knew I could fail two classes and get D's in all the others. And that's pretty much what I did. Um, and I went to high school. I went to school just because that's where my friends were. And I liked playing football and I liked wrestling and I liked the theater department. So mm -hmm. that's really, you know, actual classes. No. Yeah. So, so what was the journey? Yeah. I mean, Sorry. I think a lot of no, good. And you went for the social element. That was what you enjoyed in school. I think that's pretty common in the adolescence. Like, unless you're eager to please your folks or have certain very specific goals. Like, I know me, I'm college flunked out in a, in a semester and a half. So it's like after straight C's and D's, most of high school. So I hear you, man. It's like, let me. So, well, you know, finally, after I'd been in trouble so many times, brought home by the police so many times and things like that, my mother finally gave me what she said. I'm going to you have one rule from now on. And that is you're not allowed to die. <laughs> Every day I came home breathing. I was a good boy. I listened to my mother. OK. <laughs> so, she I mean, you had beaten her down at that point. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I had, I had, I, you know, done everything they asked me not to do to the point where she was like, you know what, just I, I made a promise to my father, I would graduate high school. And I did after summer school, graduated high school, when I was 19. Um, and I made a promise to my mother, I wouldn't die. So I'm a good boy. I listen to my parents. Okay. So when you were like 18 and that, like 18, 19, you're finishing up high school. What was what did you want? Or what did you think you wanted? in in life or kind of what were what would you have your sights set on oh man when i was i mean even before i was 18 i was getting parts and you know in paid community theater theater you know acting singing musicals whatnot um i didn't even take my sats i knew college just wasn't going to be a thing and i was working at a cafe in town that only served dinner so we didn't open until four o'clock so the day i graduated they, they told me they like the day you graduate high school you're the manager here so, you know, we're talking 1996 at age 19, all of a sudden I'm making $35,000 a year steady. Plus I had my days open. Uh, the only schooling I did after high school was I went to the, I went to an acting school in New York City um, for, and this is probably going to not mean anything to 99% of people, but for that 1%, uh, I attended the Herbert Berghoff studio and I studied okay. under the tutelage of Uta Hagen. Okay. Yeah. Look those up. No, yeah, it's, as Richard knows, I uh, and I didn't know that about you. Uh, my wife spent her college and post-college years in the hospitality industry, and I, in high school and college, was in a lot of theater. So, I mean, you went further than I ever did, but that's a lot of fun. And I know those crowds very well, and you would have fit right in if your only rule was not to die, because those are some wild-ass people. <laughs> like, they're, whoo! Oh, man. Well, to go with that, and you know, again, with the big family, I think it's part of, and everything like that. I'm, I, I'm from a family of storytellers. 
my, you know, Thanksgiving is the one required holiday in my, my house, you know, in my family, everybody had to be home for Thanksgiving. Um, and it would just be people telling stories and we're, you know, we're Jersey, we're loud, we're gregarious and we, you know, everybody's actually a really good storyteller. Mm-hmm. So it would be, you know, my, my, even to this day, my brother Richard's wife, Amy, she said her first time coming for Thanksgiving, she almost broke up with him. She was like, I'm, that was insane. I don't know if I could be part of it. And she was born and raised in Alabama. So coming to this house in Jersey with these loud people, everybody's telling stories. Um, you know, everybody tells the stories from the year and then there's like stories so good that we always like, they get requested every year. Right. The best of highlight reel. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and we're like telling each other's stories to each other once you go down that road and stuff like that. You know, you bring somebody for their first time and they're just, they're blown away by the whole thing. All right. So then I want to hear the best of the best storytellers, right? So what is, what's the one that you enjoyed? Not the one you enjoyed telling, but what was the one you enjoyed hearing the most so set the stage tell us that story that's what i want to hear we're a podcast about stories so lay it on so when we moved from pennsylvania to new jersey my brother richard who's the oldest of the boys it was so the ages the two girls and then the four boys my brother richard's the oldest of the boys and he was about to turn 16 which was the driving age in pennsylvania and then we moved to new jersey and the driving age is 17. but and he was he was uh Rich was on the wrestling team and we get to New Jersey and there's this coach there who's from Long Island. He, you know, his backstory on him, he actually practiced with the Russian Olympic team wrestling. And he had this really thick, you know, kind of Long Island, New Yorkie accent. And he would always be in the hallway, like recruiting new wrestlers. So Rich goes to school the first day and as a junior in the new high school in New Jersey, coach sees him. He's, you know, greeting people. Hey, how you doing this and that? And I got to I gotta remember how to do the voice because it's definitely part of it. But he meets Rich and it gets just get talking. He's like, oh, where are you from? Rich says, oh, I'm from, you know, Bucks County and Pike County, Pennsylvania, which if you don't know, is known for producing really good wrestlers. Oh, yeah. He's like, oh, oh you, uh, did, you, uh, did you play any sports up there? And Rich said, yeah, actually, I, I wrestled. And the coach now, he said, you wrestled in Buck County, Pike County, Pennsylvania? He's like, yeah. He's like, how, how'd you do? Rich said, I was a little better than 500 my freshman and sophomore year. Guys, floored. Your freshman and sophomore year, you had a better than 500 record. He's like, yeah, I went to regionals, took third. You took third in the regional? Your freshman year in Bucks County? He's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. It's like, Rich, Richie Hemma? Now, no one before or since have ever called my brother Richard Richie. Okay, but he goes, Richie Hemma, you are going to be Caldwell Wrestling's secret weapon. Just don't tell anybody. We're gonna bring you in, and you're gonna you're gonna blow the roof off the place. My brother Rich is like, okay, whatever you say, guy. So the thing that coach his name is Coach Gibbons. The thing that Coach Gibbons didn't know was Richard was an over 500 wrestler and went to regions in Pennsylvania because he wrestled in the now defunct 87 pound weight class. <laughs> okay, as a sophomore in high school, he wrestled at 87 pounds, and the night before matches, he and the heavyweight were going to Sizzler. I mean, he wasn't even up to 87 pounds. Right. He looked like, you look at the old picture, he looks like somebody's little brother is the water boy on the wrestling team, okay? <laughs> but that summer, he put on 40 pounds and seven inches. Oh, no. Okay? So the person that Coach Kimmins has, so first day of practice comes, and Gib, we call him Gib, Coach Gibbons is trying to think of how he's going to introduce this, this new, you know, the new secret lesson reference to the team. And you've got too many kids on the mat to go like do like the bear crawls and the crab crawls. He's like, all right, everybody who wrestled varsity, 
for uh, Colwell High School last year go. And they just get, you know, about five, six guys go down the back. It's like, all right, everybody who wrestled uh, junior varsity for Colwell Wrestling, uh, go down the back. And then they go, you know, doing drop steps or whatever it is down the back. He goes, if you wrestled varsity and had over a 500 record in Pikes County, Pennsylvania, Buck County, Pennsylvania, go. And my brother's got to go all the way down by himself. Like, you know, just probably. Yeah. So, and much like myself, you know, although not maybe not a great wrestler in the practice room, we're not going to be outworked. Yeah, which was a, a you know voracious you know in, in the in the wrestling room at practices, just you know nonstop. Nobody's going to outwork them. And then it comes time for the first match, and it was like five seconds, boom, boom, boom <laughs> done. <laughs> And Gibb is just standing on the side, and he's still, you know, he's smiling and shaking his head. And come, Richard comes over, he just shakes his hand, just like almost like a oh, "you got me, kid," yeah. you know, his <laughs> hand, and then points down all the way to the other end of the bench. He goes, "You sit down there." Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> you sit as far from me as I can get you. Yeah, I guess just "you got me, kid." Good one. Get away from me. <laughs> oh no! Oh, gosh, that's hilarious. Oh, I can only I can only imagine him retelling that story at Thanksgiving. That's 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 awesome. I love it. God, what a nightmare getting singled out like that. Oh, you can't. Yeah, that's wild. So, no, how did you end up finishing for the season? Was it just a, a bloodbath the entire time, or did you pick it up a little bit? I think we lost. Yeah. Him. Oh, there he is. There so, he is. Here's that. Good. Yep. Yeah. Good. You, caught up. you were frozen oh, like the best smile, good. like. You're having a great time. Really he had a really good smile. Um, how did the rest of his season go? Just curious. Uh, I mean, there was no one else for his weight class, so he stayed there, and I think he finished probably about 500. But, you know. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no regionals, anything like that. He took three in the region because there was only three kids in that weight class in the region in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And that's a lesson on what we call in real estate puffing. You right. Need to yeah. Be careful about puffing, folks. Yep. No, this, this coach made all the assumptions. My brother didn't say a word. No, he told the truth. This is what he did. He told the truth. Oh he just God. didn't have all the information. Oh, that's funny. So you mentioned you wrestled, though. So tell me a little bit about what the what what. Well, you did a few sports. So talk to me a little bit about your your extracurriculars and did did your uh, schoolwork ever come back to haunt you with with being able to actually compete or do any of those sports when you were in high school? Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to play spring sports. So our school, you know, you did the first half of the year and you have to have your grades up to be academically eligible to play sports for the second half. So I would, you know, football was in the fall and that was just more, I wasn't very good at it. It was just fun to be on the team and a lot of my friends were there and it kept me in shape. And then wrestling was my number one thing. Wrestling would hit. And by the end of the wrestling season, they accumulate your grades and see, you know, and I would always be academically ineligible to play a spring sport. I'm, you know, I wanted to do track. I wanted to do baseball, but I couldn't because my grades, you know, we had to be academically eligible. Interesting. Yeah, I remember in, uh, in high school, they would come in and they would look at like all of the, uh, not even the quarterlies, like when you got your interrupts, they would look at that and you had to bring like, you know, even if it was the beginning of the year, like you're what, three or four weeks into the year and, and wrestling started in November, late October. And so you've already gotten a report card and an interim by the time you get to the start of wrestling season. And they're like, you got to have whatever better than a C average. So I know a bunch of kids got kind of knocked out because of that. That was kind of cool that they didn't they didn't look at it until you're halfway through the school year. Yeah. Well, and then I would, you know, do my summer school and make up the classes. So by the time school started in the fall, I was academically eligible again to play sports. 
And oh, then halfway through the year, review again. And it was like it was the constant cycle of my life from from literally like sixth grade on. Yeah. You mentioned doing theater and stuff like that. I remember when I was in high school, what I would do is I would start fall sports and do like cross country or whatever, rowing. And then I would do that up until auditions for the musical in the spring. And then I would usually get cast in, as some role. And then by the time they went to compete, I would no longer be playing sports. So like, I would be like, thanks track team for the conditioning. I really appreciate it. I don't care how well I'm going to do. I'm going to go sing on stage. That's my thing. What got you into theater? Like how young were you when you started? And what was that journey like? I mean, what originally got me into it was, you you know, my, my parents didn't like force us into, you know, having to play an instrument or do that. The only thing we all of us, all we had to do was be in the chorus. And that was for my grandmother, my mother's mother. She loved the chorus. She loved chamber singing. She, you had to be in the chorus. So all of, all of my siblings and I, we, you had to join the chorus. Anything else you wanted to do, sports, you could do them or not. I was never made to do any sports play instruments, join clubs, anything like that, except for a chorus. Um, so, and they started chorus where we were, I, I want to say in like fourth grade. Mm -hmm. And then in fifth grade, there was a play and I got into that. And then, like I said, from sixth grade on, I was always, you know, the, our plays, our school plays in middle school and high school were, were always in the spring and summer. Well, late, late, early summer, I guess you'd say before school was out. So I wasn't playing a sport anyway, so I could go do that. Um, and I don't know, man, just, there's something about because I was always it's always a terrible not not terrible at lying I was terrible that I was a habitual liar when I was younger and there was something about being able to go on stage and it's almost like you're doing it professionally and people are applauding you for it mm -hmm. um, but I don't and, and that's another thing taking a bow and getting applause mm -hmm. I found that really exhilarating and, and somewhat addicting and I, I you know really wanted to to do that again and and it powered a lot of my performances on stage was I'm going to get the loudest cheer, loudest cheer at the end of this. And even though, I, you know, even if I don't have the leading role, I'm, I'm going to be memorable and I'm going to get these people on their feet and get them clapping and cheering for me. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was, that was always a big thing for me. Um, the other thing, and you know, Peyton, before we started, you're like, you know, make me laugh, make me cry. I don't care. So I hope it made you laugh because now we're going <laughs> to try and go the other way. Okay. So, my father, one of the important things to him was that we, we be well-rounded. Mm -hmm. So I think that went into the joining the chorus thing. So if you go to like my senior year of high school, I was varsity football, varsity wrestling, and I was the president of the chorus. So, and you know, normally like those don't, there weren't a lot of other football players or wrestlers in the right. chorus, less being the president of the chorus. Mm -hmm. um, my father always said he was, he was as comfortable at, uh, in, a, in a dive bar as he was sitting at a state dinner next to the governor. You know, he just, he, he had the same comfort level no matter where he was. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, to be a well-rounded person like that was really kind of one of the goals of life it, it, to just be, my father just wanted people to be good human beings and be well-rounded. Mm -hmm. So, but it, it wasn't always like that. So, like I said, when I was a teenager, got brought home by the cops a lot, really just kind of putting my parents through hell. Um, we ran on an opportunity the limousine service out of the house and my senior year of high school. So I was 18 years old. Uh, my father's up on the side. He's got the ladder on the outside, up on the side of the house over some bush. He had to put it at a weird angle to go over the bushes, and he's painting the side of the house. Ladder kicks out. He falls into the bushes, cracks two of his ribs. Goes to the hospital, take an x-ray, and they're like, yeah, you got two cracked ribs, but we're worried about this dark spot right here. And he had lung cancer on his right lung, and it was pretty bad. So... 
you know, luckily they caught it and said, if we didn't catch this, you had a couple months. Two things. One, if this was on your left lung, it'd be too close to your heart. The surgery puts too much stress in the heart. We wouldn't be able to operate. It's on your right side, but it's still kind of big and it's still really risky. And this surgery we're going to give you has about a 20% survival rate. So your options are you can have about nine months, nine to 12 months of living with us and doing nothing, or we can give you this surgery next week that has an 80% chance you're going to die on the table. What do you want to do? Yeah. So he took the surgery. Yeah. And, and uh, ended up living for another seven and a half to eight years. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's what it took for him to have some of the best years of his life. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're faced with that kind of decision and, you know, you get smacked in the face of reality. My father was, my father was a tough guy. He, he was a good, you know, he had a bit of a temper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not nothing abusive. Don't get anything. But he had a, he had a bit of a temper and, and could fly off sometimes and yell and, um, yeah. But and you know, again, being the youngest and being in, in the house when it happened, I got to see. You know, it was a, it was a blessing in disguise, a blessing and a curse at the same time, blessing in disguise, whatever you want to call it, because I got to see him kind of have that transformation. Because mm -hmm. uh, he he was like, I'm going to work till the day I die. He was an old Navy guy. You know, it's just the way he was. And, you know, he comes through this whole thing. He's like, what am I doing wasting my time working? Mm -hmm. you know, he, he sold the limousine business, kept one client who was a guy I really liked him. And he just kind of, he drove the guy in and out of New York City every day and went back to the house and like took care of his dogs. That's a whole nother story. Guy was a, a, one of the senior vice presidents of Merrill Lynch. So um, just basically bought my father a car to drive him around and take care of his dogs and drive his daughter to school and stuff like that. But um, other than that, my father just, you know, <laughs> spent a lot of time um you know and it, it like i said i was i was a bad as far as you know thinking life was just very casual and i could do and you know fuck off and do whatever i want mm -hmm. uh, and then watch my father go through that and you're like man you know mm -hmm. so it was it was a big impact on on me being around it like i said i was kind of i was kind of fortunate to be in the house when that happened although it made me lose my father sooner than i had i hoped he passed away uh, January 1st, 2003. So I was only 26 years old, 25 years old. Um, but those last six years, seven years I got to spend with them were, you know, or what really kind of opened my eyes to, to stop fucking around. Um, yeah. it's, it's what prompted me. So after I, I realized I wasn't going to be a famous actor, I, I moved to Boston with a girl. That didn't work. So I went and worked in Jackson, Wyoming. So my father said, you know, don't, don't keep death watch over me because i was like i'm just gonna stay in new jersey and stay with mm -hmm. you while this is going on he's like nope get out of here go see the world mm -hmm. yeah so i went to boston i went to wyoming i went to i went and lived in chattanooga tennessee um right and then i went back to Wyoming. when i went back to wyoming it was actually when he passed and i, I went back to jersey for the funeral and everything like that so i just you know i continue to try to be as well-rounded as i can mm -hmm. uh, i continue to try to just be a good person um, and that's, you know, the best homage I can, I can give my father who had that much of an effect on, you know, completely changing my life where I was when I was 18 years old. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. how that takes shape like that. Well, you mentioned as a young person, you liked excitement. You enjoyed competition for competition's sake. Uh, clearly you liked performing and you moved around a lot. What brought you to where you are? Like we've gotten as far as 25, 26. When did you start to settle into 
whatever got you where you are now? How would you say this path to where you are right now started being the family man and business owner you are? So if you start with the restaurant I had worked at when I was 14, I worked at 30 different restaurants in eight different states in all time, four time, time zones. Holy shit. So, yeah, some of them were, some of them were literally, actually Holly and I were in the car the other day. I was like, what was the name of that Mexican place in Jackson where I worked for like three weeks? Because uh, the nice thing living in Jackson, Wyoming is right before work, you could go do some epic rock climbing or right kayak river. So I went and kayaked the Hoback River, which I didn't know was at its peak that day. And you can get you can get to the bottom, and you, you stash your kayak in the woods. You hitchhike to the top, grab my truck, come down, get the kayak, throw it in the truck, drive home, shower, go to work, be ten minutes late for work, or I could hitchhike to the top, come back down, get my kayak, go back up, and run this river again. <laughs> so <Right>. yeah. <laughs> so and the next day, I just walked into work like nothing happened. They're, they're just shaking their head. They're like, "No, you've been here for three weeks. You don't pull that. Kind of stuff. <laughs> You're out of here." Um, so you know, to say I've worked in that many restaurants, understand that some of them were. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> Not that great. So, uh, but my last gig, I was at the Palm in Tyson's Corner for about six years. And, and you know, of those 30 restaurants, the Palm was like nowhere else. Uh, there, you know, I, I, it got bought out by Landry, so it's not the same anymore. But when I was there, like, there's an open drink tab for the servers during shift. <laughs> um, and clients would buy you, you know, bourbons and stuff like that. So we we used to say, you know, we got paid six digits to get half drunk and tell rich people to go fuck themselves, and they loved it. They ate it up. Yeah. They they because because in their office people don't treat them like that. So that was kind of our thing as a waiter at the pump. You got like, you know, I remember this one. I can't think of his name, but he he literally just sold his his tech company for like 125 million, and he came in for dinner with these three other guys, and I just treated them like they were nobodies, and they fucking <laughs> loved. So, <laughs> um, you know, people who hang around the yes men all the time. Anyway, um, but the getting half drunk every night and then after work going and finishing the job uh, really wasn't sustainable. And when you work at the Palm on weekdays, you if you work, you work lunch and dinner. So mm -hmm. I would leave the house at 9 a.m. and get home at midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. Wow. So I really wasn't seeing my kids. I really wasn't seeing my wife. I was not taking care of myself. I was taking stupid chances and being risky. And mm -hmm. I was friends with a man named Dustin Fox. We used to go to his house and play darts, you know, when we got off work and get really rowdy. And I uh, asked him to tell you the story one time about ripping my shirt over a darts game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he started it with real estate. He got into Pearson Smith and Holly and I had just had a conversation about, man, something's got to give, something's got to change. The big word that she and I kept saying is something's got to change. We got to, I got to change my life. And literally that next night we're at Dustin's and we're playing darts and he goes, man, this real estate thing has changed my life. I go, what'd you say? So literally from that night until I was fully licensed with Pearson Smith was about six weeks. Wow. I think it was actually less. I'd like to look this up for, for statistical accuracy, but um, I found a guy in Manassas. He's actually in Gainesville now, the, the guy who runs Homestead Realty. He does, once a month, he does the Mosley class in a week. You go yeah. bell to bell, Monday yeah. through Friday. So I cranked that out, took my proctored test, took my real estate license. Pearson Smith had it on the wall. Yeah, definitely less than six weeks from the day, from that night with Dustin until I was on, you know, a licensed agent with Pearson Smith Realty. Mm -hmm. um, and I was doing both for a little while at the Palm and, and the real estate. And actually, Holly was eight months pregnant. And the Palm was one of the few places that offered 
servers insurance. And I went in for, oh, I went in to serve Easter. It was, or it was the day before Easter. Day before Easter, I went in and the manager says, hey, come here a minute and brings me into you know one of the private rooms. He's like, look, I don't like you doing the dual career thing. We're just gonna let you go. So there goes my insurance yeah. with an eight month pregnant wife. Um, I've only been doing real estate for about two months. So I just threw myself at it. And, you know, like we were doing our little earlier thing, I, I, I unfortunately, maybe it's an unfortunate thing, but I tend to do better when I, when I have no option B, when mm -hmm. I burn the boats, when there's no turning back, when this is what we're doing and there's no other option, that's when I excel. So mm -hmm. I threw myself at it. And, you know, the classic story in, my, in the brokerage is I didn't close, I closed two of my personal deals in the first eight months, but I was on our leads team. I didn't close a lead for eight months. Mm -hmm. I kept doing the work and I kept doing the things you need to do every day and succeed. And I kept going to Mike Snow's office pretty much once a week and going, dude, this isn't working. Dude, because I was used to, you know, waiting tables. So on instant gratification, you walked out yeah. Yeah. 500 bucks at the end of the night. Bang, there it is. You saw the fruits of your labor immediately. And now mm -hmm. they're like, it's coming, it's coming, just stick with it. Now it, it's getting bad. And I, I, I mean, it got so bad, but I'd, I'd been poor before in my life. Mm -hmm. So it got to on our, on our house and we called me said hey it's not late can't be before you repossess the house and we called the car loan people and said hey you know any kind of what what's our options here because we're just we're being straight up with you i don't have any money it got to one point i took our last 20 dollars and put 15 dollars of gas in my tank for showings and bought stamps for my handwritten notes and that was it we were out of money and I closed a rental, closed another rental, and then I started closing the leads, actual sales. And, you know, like I said, I was the first eight months, I did two deals. Mm -hmm. After that, I did two a month for about 10 months straight. Yep. But that's, but all those didn't come in right then. That was because I spent those eight months putting mm -hmm. my head down, doing what's in front of me. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the biggest uh, quotes that has driven all my business has always been, don't focus on results, just commit to the activities. Uh, you know, and you take it even back to waiting tables, there's two kinds of servers. There's servers who like, they, they open the book, they see how much the tip is, they go, okay, well, I have to give the busboy this much, and I have to tip the bar out this much, and that means I've made this much, and that other table left me that much, so now, and they keep a wrong tally in their head. Whereas there's other servers, like myself, who just, you just do the job, you have a good time, make sure that people have a good time, and the money will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And I found that definitely to be the same case in real estate. If you just put your head down and do the work and I mean, and you know, you guys, I know you're Richard, you're big on the goals and I haven't, you, you've helped Holly and I write our yearly goals. Yeah. Write your goals, but then kind of forget about them. Mm -hmm. Do the daily tasks. Those goals don't, you're not going to get there if you don't do the work in front of you every day. Mm -hmm. So just putting your head down, doing what you have to do every day. The, the, what's the quote I'm, I'm searching for? Oh, uh, when you set and achieve goals, what you receive pales in comparison to who you become. So, so, you know, you set the goals and you achieve them and that's just the feeling it gives you. And I, I had this argument with a friend of mine who's, you know, he's still a ski bum kind of in Jackson, lives in a, a bum house, and, but he lives for the mountain. That's great. And I understand it because I lived that way for a while. But he's like, oh, you're, you're concentrated on the money. I was like, man, I've never concentrated on the money. Mm -hmm. Richard, as my coach, can tell you, I'm I talk about helping people and doing how many people can I help this year? And I think one year we did talk about the money and that's been one of my worst years 
in the last six years. Mm -hmm. But when I concentrate on this is how much work I want to do every day, this is the number of people I want to help, the, the money and the, the financial success is a byproduct. The success I've had as a person coming from having been, you know, rested all the time. Like I said, I lived in Jackson. I was a total, total ski bomb. It was me and three other guys, 30 plants in the basement. We weren't selling it. That was for us. So <laughs> to come from that, and that's Holly and I laugh because that's the house when we met. And, you know, now we're in like a, you know, 5,000 square foot gated golf course community. We're like, this is this is so stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> somebody's going to come and knock on the door and go, there's been a mistake. You guys got to come. There's been a mistake. <laughs> Um, but you know, to, to get into that, that point of it. So, yeah. So how did I get to where I am now? Just by, by never really putting limits on my beliefs of what I can do, which actually I'm running up against now that I have to get rid of. It's my, one of my biggest things I'm running, you know, you guys invited me to on podcasts. There's other people wanting to pay me to talk. That seems wow. insane to me. You know, I, I got this. I, so I joined, uh, the Fox homes team. One, because, you know, Dustin is a good friend of mine and he helped me get my career started. And two, he needed someone to help him with his leads team. Mm -hmm. So now I'm a lead accountability manager for at least 27 agents we're up to on our leads team. Wow. You know, and again, I, I yes, there is a financial incentive of it. But, man, all I care, I, I just want these 27 people under my tutelage to be as successful mm -hmm. as possible. So, but I'm in a place where I never thought I would be. So I guess, you know, I, I have to start going back to, again, my father's teaching of, well, just be comfortable with whatever you do. Just be the person who can just do what's ever in front of them and be fine with it. Mm. So that, you know, that's my main mental hurdle right now as being a, a manager of a, of a team and holding meetings twice a month that people listen to every word I say and they're taking it as, you know, as the book, as what to do, as, you know, for them to be successful. It, it, the pressure of that has gotten me a little bit, but it's exhilarating. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. Like I always yeah. said, like, you know, so when Holly and I were poor, you know, and living our, I spent our last $20, we were uncomfortable, but we were confident, mm -hmm. you know, and the, you know, your moments, they, they, they say, I don't, you know, the, the, the Royal day, I, I know I could attribute to somebody, but they say, you know, your, your moments of greatest growth are your moments of greatest discomfort and mm -hmm. power. So, you know, again, I'm just going to keep putting my head down and, doing what's in front of me today and you know, everything else will fall into place. I just have to continue to believe that. That's a, that's a crazy story. The, what it seems like up until you reached a certain point in a good way, you were sort of a rolling stone. Like you went where you wanted to go and did what you wanted to do. How do you feel like as you've reached this plateau or this new, new high in your life? Um, how do you like sitting still? I mean, do you still find those, ex like you mentioned performing, doing those lead meetings and stuff like that's got to have a little bit, no one's giving an ovation, but you've got that captive audience, but how do you feel sitting still? Right. So after the meetings, I always have to call one of the team leaders, either Dustin and Devin, you know, about 30 minutes, and like clockwork after the meeting that I hold, I come on like, I go, how was that? Is that what you wanted? Is that everybody? Was that good? Did I say anything? Because I don't, I talk, but I don't know if I say anything. Did I say yeah. anything? Was it good? You know, I, I still need, you're totally right, Peyton. I still need that validation. Right. You know, like, you know, not applaud me, but, you know, so, yeah. like, yeah, that's good. I just, you know, there's the, the famous story of uh, when Rodney Dangerfield did uh, Caddyshack. He thought he was doing terrible because nobody was laughing. And they're like, well, Ronnie, they can't laugh because, you know, there's a sound guy and they, it would mess up the whole shot if people, you know, laughed and applauded your jokes. He's like, well, how do I know if I'm funny? 
You know, it's kind of the same thing for me. Like nobody's applauding me. Nobody's going, great job. That was great. You know, I'm just like, okay, meeting's over. And everybody goes, bye. And I'm just like, wait a minute. <laughs> Somebody yeah. give me something. Give me something. Oh, yeah. yeah. I relate so, to so much of what you've said for, for sure. I mean, like, uh, I remember the first time that somebody said, I did what you said and it worked. And I was like, that's incredible. That's news to me. That's, <laughs> that's the greatest thing I've ever heard because I, up to this point, was just hoping it'd work out for somebody. Like, you know, you just, you don't know. Like, you know, I was like, it worked for me, but who says it's going to work for somebody else? And so that kind of stuff is, you know, and you, and it's crazy about it is so much of the feedback that I get from other people doesn't come from the person who had the feedback. It came from them telling someone else who then told me. And it's like, yeah. So I, I talked to Dustin the other day and he's like, man, everybody's loving your, what you're doing. I was like, are they? Cause nobody <laughs> shit to me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, dude. It's good to know. I only ever hear good things. People are like, so glad you're here and it's so motivational. And they, you know, you're really getting them pumped and you're really getting people worked on. I'm like, okay, thanks. He's like, I didn't yeah. know that. He said, I didn't, I, I didn't know I needed to, to tell you that kind of thing. I was like, yes, you do, please. There's so many that. managers operate in that vacuum. You know what I mean? You're in a position of authority or, or just accountability. And, but you are, like you said, it's, it was the old adage, it's lonely at the top. So if you don't have somebody else kind of giving you that corroboration, you become a lumber from office space where you're just holding the coffee cup, telling people to file reports. Like you need somebody who's going to give you that feedback to kind of up your own game a little bit. Turning like one of the things that's, that's helped me with that, like, I, I, for so much of my career, like I really made decisions based on kind of that feedback I was receiving or what I felt, you know, that was how I was interpreting the tea leaves based on, you know, uh, passive comments people would make or the decisions that they would make around whether or not to work with me or refer me or whatever. I think the thing that's like really kind of changed for me as I've, as I've just gotten more established in my career and trying new things and, you know, being more willing to make a mistake is, is, is realizing like I, I have to measure against what I believe is my best performance, right? And instead of relying on the feedback, I have to get to this point where I can just go like, was that the best I could do for that thing? And if I can genuinely go, that was the best thing that I could do, then going like, all right, well, then that was enough, right? Because I just, I've, I've gotten so far away from the feedback, I rarely get the direct feedback anymore. And I needed it so much that that's had to been like, I, I've had to like figure out a way to self-soothe because that's the only way that I know how to just continue to do it. I use that as fuel. So I've had to like reshift that in my brain and just go, did I do my best? And am I living up to the standard I now set for myself? And if I can say yes, then cool. But if I can say like, no, 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 there was some work to be done there, which let me tell you, very rarely am I ever like, I was satisfied with that performance. You know, there's definitely more. So and I think in some ways that I, ends up being to my advantage. So this is interesting. Yeah. Right. But and, and like, as you've seen, you know, Richard and I did a, I, I kind of did a private performance for Richard that somewhere we recorded that never released. But um, I said, all right, let's do it a second time. And I was ten, nervous to do a second time because if I try to recreate what I did the first time, my, my first go is usually just always my best. For sure. So, you know, that's why I like, you know, and they're like, okay, let's, let's take a second shot. You know, take two, take two just never worked. I think we tried for take three and four even, and yeah. just couldn't even get it off the ground. Yeah. Since, you know, I, I, if I talk like this and just spew it out, I, I always feel like it comes better than prepared. For sure. Uh, well, it's, it's like, like music. 
you know, there's people who are classical pianists or classical performers. You as a performer understand that. There's the fundamentals of wrestling or any physical activity you might do. At the end of the day, a lot of the most impressive performances are is jazz. I compare selling a lot of the time and the dialogues we build to jazz because you have the knowledge from all these different areas, whether it's coaching or you're telling it, talking to a buyer or a seller or you're negotiating. Like, you know, all these things they are all already in your brain. But then you just start ripping and running and you make those connections automatically and create something wholly unique that is almost impossible to duplicate. I find that's often the case myself when I'm doing like uh, coaching stuff or, or presentations and things like that. You know, it's pretty smart, Peyton, because, you know, when you think about it, like like jazz, I mean, you've had to practice music, not you, but any person who plays had to have had practice and they've got the moves or with wrestling, you know, you practice all these moves in practice, but you go out for the match or you go out for the jazz performance. You don't know exactly how it's going to go. And no one, not any performance is ever going to actually be the same, but you've practiced all the possible moves that could come up. Mm-hmm. And you got to know when you break it. You know what I mean? You got to know what you're doing to break the rules and then create something new. Otherwise you're just doing the same by rote, templated script like like the script thing i'm sure you get those questions a lot what script do i use and i'm like read every script and then say what comes to mind you know what i mean it's right. like, well, and that's, so our team we just scheduled for next week our first uh role-playing session mm-hmm. and i was I, I i've been you know and i'm like you know practice makes perfect doctors don't practice on the patients which actually they do sometimes i found out but uh, <laughs> they call it a practice which is really yeah. troubling yeah. um but you know that that's a really smart way to put it, Peyton, and I appreciate that. You 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 have to learn all the moves, no conversation. And that's why I have scripts mm-hmm. that I give and I have object inhaling. And that's actually one thing that Dustin and I, Dustin Fox and I really, really connected on. And we both believe the same thing independently. We found out from people on the team we both said the same thing independently was it, yeah, it's called a script, but it's really just a conversation. It's mm-hmm. a guided conversation. I'm gonna guide and control where this conversation goes. But it's not, you can't really say it's a script because, you know, from doing theater, people go off script a lot. So you have to be able to, but, you know, you bring it back around. It's, so it's not, you know, I, I don't want to say I refuse, but I, I don't like the word script. I don't like the word objections when I'm teaching yeah. my, my, my team. I don't want to say people have objections. So they have questions. People mm-hmm. have questions. And we're just answering them. It's just a conversation. I think when you put a word like objection on it, you're like, oh, no, they've given me an objection. What do I do? But if they just had a question and need an answer from their professional agent, I have it. Right. You know, so, I, yeah, I've gotten rid of script and objection and it's all just conversation and question. Mm-hmm. One of my things is, uh, I don't know about you, but like, I don't like the phrase you need to have a thick skin to convert leads because I think it ignores the facts that you're going to convert one in 10, one in 20, not to get nerdy on the podcast. But like, if you accept that statistically, there's a certainty you're going to f- just fail for whatever reason, because their kids crying in the background, or it's a wrong number, or they hate you or like, or whatever, like, then it just becomes, I'm just on to the next person I want to help. You know what I mean? And like you said, it just forms more of a natural rapport. I don't know about you, but I've, I had an appointment recently with a friend. That's always a script. Or, Richard, you can certainly speak to this. Like, I find it hardest when I'm talking to someone when I, that I'm close to, particularly, I, I don't know, I'm from this area, so all my people who knew me at various restaurants that you may have been to are the people I'm now buying and selling for. 
And uh, it's super awkward because it used to be like my happy hour crowd. And now I'm like, no, 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 I promise I'm very competent. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, 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 like hit me with your best shot. I got this. But you got to step away from that script and be able to be more flexible and kind of go outside and color outside the lines and then draw them back into a conversation from that time you got your shirt torn over some darts because it's the person who tore your shirt. You know what I mean? And it's a little weird and you got to be flexible. Um, I like that performance aspect. I don't know if you as a, with a background in performing, I it really, you mentioned habitually lying and performing on stage scripted is definitely like that. This differs in that way, but it still scratches that itch of like, no, I'm on the spotlight is on me. I've got to make this happen right now. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like now that you're, you've graduated to that next level and you're teaching and coaching other people, is it, are you now the headliner in a certain way at those meetings or is it more a director? How do you feel like your what is your role? No, it's still somewhat performance. Um, you know, the, 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 one of the things I learned in my acting school, one of the things Uta Hagen taught me uh, was, you know, acting is behaving genuinely in a disingenuous situation. Now I'm behaving genuinely in really genuine situations. It's almost yeah. like, you know, when you practice enough disingenuous situations, things that could never actually, you know, if you, if you look at a movie or any kind of play or anything, you're like, yeah, people don't actually just break into song in the middle of talking, you know, that's for like the blur of reality and, and stage kind of go together or, or, you know, every TV show, my, you know, every, every sitcom style TV show, my wife and I will watch together. I'm like all these shows, if everybody was just honest with each other, I was like, you know, this would be, you know, a three, a three episode, one season show, but you know, it's all, but so they're, they're, it's disingenuous situations. It's not things that would happen in real life. Now I have genuine situations and I'm reacting to them genuinely. Mm -hmm. So I think having flexed that, you know, I did some, uh, did a lot of uh, uh, improv theater and stuff like that as well. And I think that makes me very good on my toes as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I just, I think there's more at stake now than my applause mm -hmm. is what really weighs on me. So I've, what I was trying to get, what I was kind of getting to earlier is like now, I've got other people's livelihoods, not dependent on me. It's dependent on them and the work they do. And, you know, I can only I lead the horse to water. I can't, you know, make them drink kind of thing. But, man, I got I to gotta lead them to some good fresh water, mm -hmm. make sure it's the water they want, you know, make sure I'm, I'm getting them to where they need to be in order to drink. So um, did that answer your question? I don't, again, yeah. I'm going to have I'm going to call you when this is over and be like, was that, was that good? Was that good? <laughs> <laughs> it all thumbs up from here. I actually wrote down something you said. I thought that was pretty profound. There's more at risk than my applause. I think a lot of real estate agents can learn from that because they do they make it about themselves. You kind of touched on it earlier, you know, not like, you know, as a server, not looking at the tips and like adding stuff up, just going out and going like, I'm going to do a good job for the sake of doing a good job. Right. And because I'm going to trust that part of the process of doing a good job is that I'm gonna focus on doing the good job more than I am about the result of making money. And people realize like, you know, we talk about it all the time in the in the real estate industry is like those agents that have commission breath and then the ones that are genuine and just how, you know, it's it's like those ones that have the commission breath are very transactional. The ones that are just like, listen, I'm gonna do a good job for this person because they're a human being and they need someone to care about them, right? Like I can care about them. I know I can do a good job for them and believing that, like that I think is what probably resonates with a lot of people. I'm sure that resonates with your team, but it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. So in mm -hmm. some ways I see that in you and I'm like, it's obviously your superpower, right? And that you can take and, and, and not talk in terms of a script or a dialogue, but you can take personal experience, anecdotes, you can have a conversation with somebody. And it was kind of like that script training, their role playing. You know, I was reading in Ryan Serhant's book, 
a lot of people know Ryan Serhan is he's like was on Million Dollar Eight listing or whatever show. I don't I never watched the show, but I've seen a lot of his stuff and I read his book. And one of the things he does with his team that I think is awesome is he doesn't do script training. He does improv. So he'll be like, hey, you know, here's a situation. You just walk into a Starbucks. There's a pregnant lady there in line. You're striping up conversation. What do you say? Boom, go. And then that's the scene. And then two people act it out, you know, because that's real life. That's what will potentially happen. And every situation isn't just about going like, how do I get this woman who's pregnant in Starbucks to buy a house for me? It's about how do you make a connection with a human being who happens to be pregnant? Right. Like, how do you do that? And probably don't lead with, are you pregnant? Right. Like, these are the kind of things that you that you like are learning because that's real life. A script is a real life. And the first time you hear somebody come across the script, God, I love it. Like, because I'll hear on the phone. I'm like, oh, here comes the script. I'm going to I'm going to give them a response that they're never going to have anticipated. So we can have some fun. Right. I want to get to the real person here. And you hear all those stories within the industry, like people saying stuff or crazy things coming up. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking about when you, when you were going through it. And, and, uh, and when I was really into practicing my listing presentations, I don't think I've told the story before, but when I was younger, I would practice hours every single week. Like if I didn't have something going on, I was practicing on my listing presentation and people got really sick and tired of practicing, practicing with me. Like they wouldn't want to role play with me. So I role play with my kids. My kids were like probably between the ages of like three and eight. So they're pretty young and I'd sit them down across from me for as long as I could get them. And I'd be like, all right, I'm going to do my presentation and whatever wild shit came out of their mouth. <laughs> right. I'd be like, all right, that's cool. You want to get a juice box here? I'll come with you. You can show me the refrigerator, see the dimensions. I'll write it all down. That'd be great. Like whatever it was, because at the end of the day, it was like, you're just there. You're with a person, you have an audience and you just need to be a human being, a human being that's skill that can, that can provide value, but showing up, having conversation and, and figuring out a way that you can care and help. Um, and I love that about everything that you've kind of said, all these life experiences, these lessons learned, how you've taken every moment, it seems like, and you've been able to say how, you know, the, how do I apply this to my life to just be a better version of, of me, even when, you know, maybe they weren't the best decisions being made, but it's culminated in who you are today. And I think you're a wonderful example, uh, to a lot of people and you inspire me. So that was, that was awesome. All the things that you had had to share. And so for me, my question for you then is kind of, what do you feel like next? Not in terms of a goal. But what do you see as like, what would you aspire to continue in this growth journey that you have embarked on your entire life? What do you, what do you see? Like, uh, tell me about that. I mean, so, and you know, as, as through the coaching thing, you know, we write goals for the year and everything like that. And, uh, it's funny. I was going to teach you something else, but um, I don't, I'm not 100% sure, man, because Holly's starting this TC company. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out soon, Hammer Transaction Coordination. Uh, and we've looked at that as like, oh, well, I could, if I wanted to kind of lay back more, I could do that as well. And the two of us could do it together and, you know, still make a pretty good living, be with our kids a little bit more, maybe stuff like that. Um, you know, Peyton, to, to, I know I never answered your question earlier, but we talk about like, well, if we could do that, we could do that from anywhere. We don't have to be here. So we can move to like Costa Rica and work remotely. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we could literally be anywhere. We constantly, you know, yeah, we're settled, but I, I we, cause Holly's the same. Holly moved, we lived in Florida and Idaho and uh, Wyoming and Baltimore and all this other stuff as well. So we're, we're, you know, the same in that we're like, we, we like where we are and we like that our kids have friends here. That's really like the main reason for not moving is to keep our kids kind of grounded. We've got a good school system. They've got good friends. You know, this is fine. We're, we talk about it like a prison term. We're going to do our 15 years and get out. Um, but uh, there he is. 
That's it. I said there was one. There was one. Yeah. Um, Absolutely every other recording. It's totally cool. But also, but you know, also we we still think, oh, well, we could do, and maybe give these kids just a totally different life and just go crazy. I mean, we talk about because we both miss the mountains. We talk about like Denver, but Denver's the same prices here, so that wouldn't make sense. Or you know, my a buddy of mine a couple years ago with his kids moved to Germany. And he's loving it. And I'm like, man, we could do that and still be transaction coordinators in Virginia. Um, or, you know, the, the, I'm really enjoying my role uh, with this team, being the team lead manager and, and having that. And, you know, I've gotten to the point where I, I, I don't buy leads. I don't take leads from anywhere anymore. I've just, you know, it's repeat and referral business. So it's, you know, as Buffini says, it's living the good life. I'm, I'm doing deals that I want to do instead of just taking what I can get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, helping, you know, not to say I didn't want to help the other people, but helping people I wanted to. Um, but, you know, it just gives that extra level of, of personalization to, to any transaction if it's, you know, someone either repeat or referral. So we're doing that. And just, you know, I never thought, and, and I told Dustin no for, for months and months and months about not wanting to join his team because he was talking about taking over the world. And I'm like, that's not me. I, you know, yeah. um, but now that I'm in it, and you know, I talked to kind of Mike Snow about when when he was helping Eric Pearson build build Pearson Smith's Realty. He's like, it's just it's kind of even though there's not that much financial conversation to it yet, there might be down the road. We'll see. But man, it's really fun helping somebody build something right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's small again, and that's one of the things I missed. You know, from when I first started, our brokerage was small, and everybody knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, there's there's. You know, if you could take those at a, at a spiritual level, there, there's spiritual reasons to, to keep doing what I'm doing and, and really enjoying it. So, um, yeah, teaching and coaching and nothing gets me nothing gets me more motivated than motivating other people. Mm-hmm. So it helps me in that way, too. So, I mean, maybe we just keep what we're doing, what we're doing. It's a really, really long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, uh, but we just keep, I mean, where am I, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? Man, I could. I could go back to bartending tomorrow, quite honestly. <laughs> what, I, what I think you could say to that answer, like what I heard was you're going to continue just to be the best version of you every day, right? Yeah. And what comes your way, you'll play the, hand, play the hand you'll dealt. And if something comes along that seems like it's uh, it's the way to go, then you'll give that the credence it's due and continue to just do it the best way you can. And no, I, I, think, I think the pandemic has put pretty much the kibosh on any job interview being like, where do you see yourself in five years? Because oh, right. Three years ago, did we all see ourselves here? No. Yeah. Yeah. That the the whole you know to me the whole uh, there's always been two questions in job interviews that always kill me was where do you see yourself in five years? I'm like, buddy, you don't even know where you're going to be five years from now. If I look at myself five years ago, I'm like, yeah, no way. Um, That and the you know why do you want to work here? Uh, Because I enjoy food and paying rent. That's why I want to. When, yeah. when I was working at a hippie burrito joint in in Port, Portland, Oregon, they were like, "Why do you want to work here?" You're like, you really want to answer that question? The yeah. job market's terrible, and I'm about to get kicked out of my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little too much truth on that yeah. that time. I love it. I love it. Well, yeah. I know we're we're running down on time, but I did have a follow up question I was going to ask from earlier in the show, right? So during Thanksgiving, we heard the best story that you felt right off the all time favorite list of stories. What is your favorite story to tell at Thanksgiving? And we'll close on that. Your favorite story. Sheesh. I know you got a bunch of them. We didn't even like scratch the surface, but one that comes to mind, just 
the first one that comes to mind. All right. So we also had uh, in the midst of having all these kids and I won't give you the whole backstory on him. We had a foster brother um, who, well, first of all, I'm a lifelong Jets fan from, you know, middle school on. And uh, my foster brother's name is Tom Brady. So, you know, (laughs) anyway, um, so there's a whole story about how he came to kind of live with us for a few years in his teenage years. Anyway, Tom, Tom was a big man. Tom, Tom uh, played rugby in college. He was a uh, airborne ranger in the army. He was a large American. Um, And we went, I think I was 16. He took me to the army Navy game. And it was at, we were living in New Jersey at the time. It, it was at, it was at the old veteran stadium in Philadelphia. And we're sitting kind of, you know, road double Z up in the corner, nosebleeds, whatever, looking down at the backs of birds, watching the game. Um, and it, it gets to be a blowout. Navy's winning. And, you know, so the stadium's starting to empty. And the section, a couple sections over, a bunch of Navy cadets unroll this thing. It's like maybe 10 king-size sheets sewn together with a big N on it that took up like a whole section of the stadium. And... We were across the field from uh, down on field level. They put some army cadets and they put some navy cadets, like field level. Are we still here? We're still good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, you, you're frozen. I think. Um, and so, but we noticed like everybody's getting. Up. Oh no, no, I'm sorry. It was they hung they hung a banner over the navy cadets went up, hung a banner over the army cadets where they were, and you watch a bunch of army cadets go out the tunnel. They come out. I guess there's a big thing about like throwing. You have to come back from the army navy game with your hat. So they're trying to throw each other's hats in the field or take them and, you know, and they're pushing and fighting and everything. But we noticed everybody got kind of on the jumbotron that was near there. So they, you know, about the, the halfway through the fourth quarter, the Navy cadets opened this big sheet, you know, two sections away from us. We're like, we're going to go and we're going to get on the jumbotron. So we're kind of standing behind one of the guys holding like the side of the sheets. And you look across the field and you watch a bunch of army cadets go up the tunnel. And, you know, a minute later, they start coming out of the tunnel right in front of us. And I thought it was, it was going to be like, oh, we're all in the services together. Ha, ha, ha. No, man. First, <laughs> Navy, first Army cadet out of that tunnel. Bam. And they just start going at it. And we're like, whoa, what did we just get into? <laughs> the Navy cadets at the top of the sheet start trying to roll it up. Me and an Army guy jump across seats and grab it so they can't roll it up because we're trying to get this thing away from them, tear it up and throw it down. And I literally, I got a Navy cadet just on top of me, well on me. And, uh, <laughs> the army guy looks at me, goes, you got it? And I was like, yeah. And he stands up, pushes the Navy guy off me. I stand up. I take a swing at somebody. And I, I think it's because I wasn't even an army cadet uniform or a Navy cadet. You know, I was just some civilian. Man, I just get jumped. And I'm like literally under the seats getting beat up. And Tom comes in. Like I said, he's a big guy. He's just throwing guys off me, picks me up, says, we got to get out of here. And... So I know as as he's pulling me one way, somebody grabs me the other way and I just shake him off. I didn't throw a swing, but I like kind of, you know, getting the arm off me and it was veteran stadium security. So now veteran stadium security thinks I'm attacking one of their guys. Boom. Back under the seats, getting (laughs) (laughs) they take me down the tunnel. They took my picture, which my mother wouldn't have made recognize my face. Um, but they take me down the tunnel, they took my picture and they kick us there. Like you guys get out of here, but they didn't even take us all the way out of the stage. Just like, yeah, ha ha. We got you. We'll beat you up. Get out of here. 
we just went like two seconds over and grabbed my, I put my hat down and just watched the end of the game. Like, but, but yeah, I got, I got my ass kicked by the Navy Corps in succession. I got my ass kicked by the Navy Corps cadets and the veteran stadium security. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. That's a football match. And you got to watch the game. You got to still. Yeah, I got to watch the end of Army getting just absolutely whipped by Navy. Okay. Oh, that is, dude, that is too funny, man. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for being on today. Yeah, thank you. You're, you're full of wisdom. The stories and everything you shared are awesome, and I'm really excited for when this one comes out. Um, any shameless plugs that you want to give for your team, your business, just general life advice before we let you go? Plugs. Um, I mean, it's not coming up now, but like I said, watch in the future for Hammer Transaction Services. Um, we're, once Holly has all the systems and everything in place, we're, we've already got two other people asking about, you know, getting jobs with us and then kind of Holly teaching them how to do it. We Holly is committed to the Fox Films team, but we figure bring in some other some other employees. They can reach out to other agents. Yeah. Um, uh, what else can I say? Uh, if you are a more experienced agent and you're looking for the kind of coaching that I provide and the kind of leadership that Dustin and Devin provide, um, we're not really taking new agents right now. But if you're an experienced agent looking for a good team to get to up your game like that much more, uh, reach out to Dustin and Devin. Um, and business uh, bridges, business solutions. You know, the coaching that you and, and Mike Snow have helped me with. Um, yeah, I, I, I think in the beginning it was it was me being coached and I like that it's melded into you and I kind of coach each other through sessions. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mike Snow gives me a whole different perspective. Mike gives me a perspective on, on my new position as well as my own personal just business coaching. Um, you know, what else can I say? I appreciate the plug, dude, and you're, you're the man. I'm looking forward to seeing everything that you have uh, in store for us in the future and just continue to be a stand-up dude who has a huge heart, man. Thanks for being on with us today. Oh, it's been great, dude. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Right, Guns man. at the end. We said it. Okay. We're going to wait. We're going to – we'll shout you off, and then uh, thank you. I cannot thank you enough. You were a great guest. All right, guys. So, Peace. Talk to you what a fascinating human being. Dude, I love Gunther, man. I could talk to him for days. Uh, clearly. I've, I, he and I first met. Like, like we came to Pearson Smith at pretty much the same time on different days of the lead team. Because that was Monday. Yeah. I don't know what the hell day he was. Um, and he was just, you know, whatever. Gunther with the interesting name Gunther. I'd never met a Gunther before in my life. And uh, just didn't really get to know him that much before the pandemic hit. And uh, lo and behold, uh, what an awesome guy. <laughs> just a totally cool dude. Love oh, yeah, that was a great session. I don't think I have any more wisdom to add uh, on top of everything that he shared. I mean, he's no, just like, the fact that you could reach a peak and be like, I'm just going to put on a parachute and 10 bar if I feel like it because fuck the world. Like, but also, I'm wildly successful. Like, it was such yeah. a cool. Most I of the mean, people we talked to on his level are so focused yeah. on the next thing, which is great. It has its own inspiration. But to have a family man like us who's like, yeah, I mean, I'm willing to start over if that's where my heart leads me was. Yeah. Fucking inspiration. You don't know me. I grew up in a box, same as yeah. you in a certain way. So that, what an exciting life. I love, I love it. And, and just being being in tune with what's enough. You know, I think that's kind of the thing that I that yeah. I take away when I talk to Gunther is it's like I'm gonna make the best of the circumstances the way that they are. I'm gonna learn whatever I can. I'm gonna experience life to its fullest, but I'm also okay with enough is enough, right? Like yeah. I don't have to kind of chase, 
you know, I don't have to chase society's expectation of success or whatever. Like he can, he can, he can have his own definition. So yeah. I love that about him. And that was uh, that was a great meeting. So I don't think I have anything extra to add other than check them out. You know, the, the Fox team, uh, if you guys are looking to buy, sell a yep. home. So like Gunther is, is, is excellent. Reach out to him, connect with him online. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he already shouted out Bridges Business Solutions. So Peyton, you want to plug yep. you and then we'll sign off. As always, I'm here for Milestone Virtual Services. If you have a small business and you want to automate your client outreach, your administration, your bookkeeping, really anything you do by uh, by computer or phone, give us a call, book a meeting. We'd love to talk about getting a college educated and eager to learn person as a member of your staff for four or five bucks an hour. So give us a call. Thank you so, so much. And uh, as always, uh, Star, Star Wars Gunpoints. Pew, 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 pew. All right, guys.